Good morning, it's time for us to begin. Good morning, we're good. Welcome to everyone here this morning, especially welcome to any visitors that we have. You are always our special guests and uh, we encourage you to come back, be with us at any time you can. Um, and please uh, stay around for a few minutes and let us introduce ourselves and, and uh, get to know you uh, a little bit better. Uh, if you will, uh, turn off your cell phones at this point if you haven't done so already. And if you are a visitor and has, haven't filled out one of those cards in the pew, the back of the pew in front of you, please do so and just give that to someone near you and it will get to the right uh, individuals. As we, as I always say, and as we always uh, attempt to do, we worship God, we attempt to worship God in spirit and in truth and according to the pattern that we find in the New Testament. And if there's anything that you encounter this morning uh, that you think strange or odd or whatever, uh, please feel free to ask us. We feel like we uh, have um, a scripture for all that we do here in our worship services. The Lord's Supper is still being uh, distributed uh, through our packets, individual packets, and if you did not um, obtain one of those, uh, anyone not get one that needs one? Mike? Looks like everyone, everyone has theirs. Fine, thank you. Uh, and the giving uh, this, this afternoon or this morning will be uh, as usual in the back of the auditorium with those black boxes. We plan on starting in October, redistributing them, uh, spreading out and, and distributing the uh, emblems and the collection uh, in the beginning of October, first, first Sunday in October. Our life groups, uh, you should be hearing from your uh, respective uh, elders uh, for those life groups and uh, begin to schedule those first meetings um, and then we will move forward with uh, individual plans on on how those will come about within each of those groups so there are sheets in the back uh, or out in the vestibule on the table if you haven't seen those and don't know which group you're in just pick up one of those and your elders uh, should be getting in contact with you uh, at some point We need to keep uh, the literal family, uh, Teresa and her family, in, in, in our minds uh, with the loss of her brother, family struggling, and uh, we need to keep them uh, in our prayers. This morning, John Kelly uh, will be our song leader. Uh, Chris uh, French will be delivering the message. Um, Jeff Floyd will have the reading and the prayer. Chad Judge will be in charge of the Lord's table. Kevin Harvey will close us in prayer. Before we begin, let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to come here to bow before you in prayer and in our worship that we will do everything we can to derive the most benefit from having been here, that we will throw ourselves into whatever we are doing at the moment, the singing, the praying, listening to your word, observing the Lord's Supper, that we will focus entirely on what is at hand during those moments. We pray, Father, that as a result, we will leave this place more inspired to serve you, stronger spiritually than when we came, and more willing to go out into this world and share your gospel with others. We pray that as we meet from time to time, Father, that, that we will continue to do everything uh, according to the pattern that you've laid down for us in your word, and that 
we will, as a church, as a congregation, be a light to this community and to the world around us. We ask that you be with us now as we enter into our worship. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Let's all please stand and we'll sing hymn number 19. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Hymn number 19. <clears throat> Next hymn this morning, number 669. 669, this is my Father's world. <clears throat> Next to this hymn, Brother Jeff Floyd will have our scripture reading and prayer. This is my Father's world. And
Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come to, you, come to you this morning. Lord, we thank you for all the blessings you give us. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to be at this congregation. We pray, Lord, that you'll be with the elders and deacons and the decisions they make. And Lord, we pray that you'll be with them. Lord, we thank you for Chris and David and the lessons they bring and, just, and all those who, who help this congregation. We pray, Lord, that you'll be with so many who are sick pray that you'll be with them and their families. We pray also, Lord, for those who've lost loved ones recently. Lord, we pray that you'll continue to be with us. We pray that you'll continue to be at this country. We pray that you'll forgive us. And thank you, Lord, for Christ who died for us. In his name we pray, and amen. amen. Scripture reading this morning is from Job 41, first four verses. Can you pull in a leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words? Will he make an agreement with you for you to take him as you slave for life? Next time this morning, number 511, oft we come together. 511.
To prepare our minds for the Lord's Supper, I'd like to read from Luke, Luke chapter 22, and starting in 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. On the first day of each week, we set our minds towards the cross, thanking Jesus for his willingness to go to that cross to, to die uh, and to shed his blood for our sins so we, we would have hope. We do have bread that represents his body and the fruit of the vine that re represents his shed blood. Let's give thanks for the bread. <clears throat> Father, we come to you now thanking you for Jesus. We thank you for the love that he had for us and his willingness to, to go to that cross uh, for us. Father, we, we focus our minds on him and we pray that we take this bread. It's according to your will and it's well-pleasing to you. We thank you for Jesus and all he does. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go to God again for thanks to the fruit of the vine. Father, we come to you once again. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to, to come to you to, to thank Jesus that he was willing to shed his blood for us. Father, we will remember that weekly but also daily that his love for us and the love that you have for us, that we do have an avenue to you now. We pray that we'll take this uh, fruit of the vine that's well-pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. We do have an opportunity to give back to the Lord, which he has blessed us tremendously. As Rick said, we do have black boxes in the back to uh, drop off your contributions. I do like to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and in verse 6, it says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful, cheerful, cheerful giver. So let's go to God in prayer. 
Father, we, we come to you once again and thanking you for all the many blessings that you do give us. We thank you for this church building and the families that come here that you have truly blessed us. You bless us as individuals. Father, we do pray that our offering is well-pleasing to you, that the elders will use it according to your word, to, to spread your word throughout this community and also throughout the world. We thank you for all the blessings you give us, and we especially thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all please stand. We'll sing hymn number 200. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. Number 200. <clears throat> it's at this time that the young children may go to the children's Bible hour.
invitation hymn for this morning, number 356. 356, Jesus is tenderly calling. Brother Chris. Oh, yeah, thank you. You start asking the question on the screen behind me to the general populace, and you'll get some funny looks, won't you? You get into the scientific community and ask this question, you'll get some really funny looks because they think you're crazy. There is no way dinosaurs and humans live together, right? Well, in this series, we've been talking about some Christian evidences. Specifically, we started off talking about the Bible. Can you trust your Bible? We found out that there is evidence, bedrock, solid evidence, that proves that I can indeed trust my Bible, that this thing was not written by man. It was written by God, and there's evidence that proves that. And so last week we talked about evolution, and if the Bible's true, I can't believe in evolution. There's not enough room in the Bible for evolution. Last week we also talked a little bit about there's not even enough room in science for evolution anymore. Science has now disproved evolution. It may take a while for it to die in the general populace, but evolution's dead in the water. And so there's not enough room for evidence or for evolution, even in science any longer. There's no evidence there. So now we come to evolution's poster children. If you were to go into your children's school and look in their science textbooks, you're going to find dinosaurs. And then you're going to find 150 billion years ago. Or you're going to find, and this is proof of evolution, and it is not proof of evolution. As a Bible believer, remember, we believe that God wrote this book. And there's evidence to back it up, right? As Bible believers, we believe that God created everything in six literal days including dinosaurs, including man. And so man and dinosaurs have always lived together. And we stopped, or at least some of us stopped buying into that because the evidence from science was so strong, right? And it's just not there anymore. The evidence, evidence that proved that dinosaurs and man could not live together all that's gone now. Evolution's not true. We've found the evidence that proves that it's not true. And so let's think a little bit about dinosaurs. What does science tell us about dinosaurs? Does it tell us anything? And if so, what does it mean? Can we figure out from history, from science, whether dinosaurs and humans live together? Or is there any evidence? Well, let's start here. There are all kinds of dragon myths across the world, right? So think with me for just a second about some of those myths. Maybe you told your children when they were little, or maybe your mom and dad told you when you were little about dragons in England and shiny knights and battles and all these kinds of things. But then you cross a continent in China and you hear some similar stories, don't you? And you come over to the Native American cultures in our country before we got here and you know what you find very similar stories about dragons that's odd right because these cultures didn't connect until just fairly recently over the last five six hundred years and these stories are very very old and so how did these stories end up in Europe all across Europe all the European nations have dragon myths like this. And so how did they end up in all of, across Europe, in the Americas, as well as in 
the Asian continents. How did that happen? Well, I'm going to submit to you today that there is a seed of truth in the dragon myths. I think these are dinosaur stories that have been passed down through the generations. And people simply did not know what to call them. You take a look at the dragons just in your, in your mind or on the screen behind me. And you'll see a lot of similarities between a dragon and a dinosaur. And so if you don't know what to call an animal you might, that looks like this, you might call it a dragon, right? Well, we think, well, why in the world would we do that? Well, let me, let me give you some science, and then we'll get into some history again. And then we're going to get into some Bible later on in our lesson. This is a petroglyph that is in the Kachina Natural Bridge National Monument in Utah. You can go see it today. Um, this is obviously a, a brontosaurus, right? And it's about 10 feet up on the right side of, the, uh, of the, the bridge there. You find this, this, um, this drawing. It's not only this one. You'll find pictures of mountain goats, people, all kinds of things, um, mammoths. You'll find all kinds of drawings on this thing. It's one of the reasons it's preserved. Back in 1908... Teddy Roosevelt preserved this along with several other national uh, parks. This is one of them, Kachina Natural Bridge in Utah. So they've gone back and they've looked at this thing. And in fact, some of our friends at apologeticspress.org have gone and taken picture, pictures uh, of this, um, this dinosaur. They talked to some of the, the rangers that are there. And you know what the ranger said? Well, it can't be a dinosaur because we know that humans and dinosaurs didn't live together. And so it's got to be, maybe it's a horse. It's the best thing we can come up with. But then that doesn't make sense because these ancient Indian cultures that lived around this time period didn't have horses until the Spanish brought them along several hundred years later. And so it can't be a horse and it can't be a dinosaur because we know that humans and dinosaurs didn't live together. So it just can't be a dinosaur. It can't be a horse either. I'm not sure what that thing is. It's what the rangers tell people when... When you go visit this place, it's on my bucket list. I hope it's on yours too. Maybe we'll get to go see it someday together. But this is proof that man and dinosaurs live together. One proof. And we're going to come back to this in just a second with some more interesting things. But one of the things I want you to see just off the bat is if you didn't know what to call a dinosaur, might you call it a dragon? And if... Let's, let's get into this section. <coughs> Let me tell you about Dr. Gideon Mantell before I get ahead of myself. This guy's a doctor. He's out delivering babies one day in 1822, and he's busy with the baby and the mother uh, while his wife is out walking the country road where the couple lives. She stumbles across this fossil. It's a tooth from an iguanodon. She doesn't know what it is. Uh, people have not found dinosaurs up until this point. We lived with them at one point, but they are, they've been gone so long we forgot, right? And we even think that we didn't live with them now. At least that's what science wants you to believe. And so she stumbles across this tooth in 1822. It was the first dinosaur fossil that's been recently found, right? And so she stumbles across it and thinks, oh, that's weird. So she takes it back to her husband, who's a doctor. He's familiar with these, these bones and things, right? And he says, well... This is not a human bone. Good job, doctor. 
So not a human bone. They finally figure out that it is a giant reptile bone. They go, this is the weirdest thing ever. And they start digging around and eventually they find some more. So the word dinosaur wasn't coined until 1822. So if you look in your Bible, you're not going to find the word dinosaur, although they're there. Because the word dinosaur wasn't coined. We made up that word, right? You're familiar with this. We made up that word in 1822 when Gideon Mantell's wife found the first dinosaur fossil that's been found in a very long time. This thing is called a coelacanth. They've been extinct for 65 million years. Um, you hear the sarcasm in my voice, perhaps. 65 million years is how long these things have been extinct. In fact, this is what's called an index fossil. And so when scientists find this fossil, this, this animal's fossil, in a layer of rock, they automatically know that all the fossils in that layer are at least 65 million years old. You know the problem with that? This thing's not extinct. You still find it today. As a matter of fact, you find them right here in Madagascar and right around Indonesia. The Indonesian fishermen have been catching them for hundreds of years. They're very familiar with this fish. It's about 100 pounds. It's massive. The thing with this thing is, the reason they thought it was extinct is because its flippers kind of look like feet. So this thing, they said, is the missing link between water animals and land animals. Remember, for evolution to be true, there has to be millions and millions and millions of missing links. Things that are half one animal and half another. And we talked about last week, how that's not how biogenics works. If you have a cat and you have a, a boy cat and a girl cat, what do you have? A baby cat, right? Some of you guys are familiar with that. Boy cat, girl cat, baby cat. So... That's how biogenics works. Science, scientists want you to believe that if you have a boy cat and a rhinoceros, then that they can form a hippopotamus. That's just not how science works, is it? You're not the dumb one for buying into what the scripture says. You're not the dumb one for denying evolution. They'll make you feel that way, but you're not. You're the one who's following with science. So go back and follow the science. Answer and ask all these questions. This thing, the coelacanth, they thought was extinct for 65 million years because its flippers look like feet. And they haven't been able to find fossils of it over the last 65 million years. Because it still exists. And the ones that you're finding aren't anywhere near 65 million years old. And the fossils that are inside that layer of rock aren't 65 million years old either. And just because you found this animal, this fossil, inside that layer of rock, doesn't mean it's 65 million years old. You see how the logic seems circular here. Oh, well, this thing's extinct. No, it's not. They found it in 1938. It's actually the day uh, Christmas Eve. They found this thing on Christmas Eve. A fisherman drew it in uh, right outside of Madagascar, I think. Good Christmas present for us. And so it's not extinct, and all of the logic surrounding this thing starts unraveling pretty quick, doesn't it? So let's go back to dinosaurs. There's our, there's our dinosaur at the Kachina Natural Bridge uh, in Utah. It's interesting, right, that we didn't know that dinosaurs existed until 1822 when Gideon Mantell's wife found that first dinosaur bone. 
So how, question, how did these ancient Indian civilizations living 1,000, 1,500 years ago know what a brontosaurus looked like? Isn't that weird? If we didn't, George Washington didn't know anything about dinosaurs. Stop and think about that. Not a single one of the founding fathers knew anything about giant reptiles once living upon the earth. So how did ancient Indians living 1,500, 1,000 years ago know what, exactly what a brontosaurus looked like? You know, the funny thing about this is in Utah, they have found brontosaurus graveyards. There's tons of them there. So what do you think we put two and two together? A while back, there were brontosauruses living in Utah. Someone saw them and drew a picture of one. Makes sense, right? A while back, I was in, uh, in Africa. I told this story probably a couple thousand people at this point. But uh, probably in 2006, Kelly and I got to go to Africa on our first mission trip to Africa. It was awesome. Uh, we should all go. Let's go. Um, but it was really great. We, went, we got to go on a safari while we were there. And we're riding in one of these um, uh, Land Rovers that has the roof raised up on it. So we can kind of stand up and look around and get a full 360 degree view. And we're seeing all kinds of cool things. There's wildebeest. There's elephants. Uh, all kinds of cool stuff. There's a... Um, hyena that's really neat um, and so we see all these cool animals and all of a sudden we're just kind of driving through and there's a tree over there and our guide looks around he turns around he says she must be very quiet we're, we're 19 20 years old uh, and so we're just kind of like look at that look at that this is cool and so he says she must be very quiet and we said why he points over in the tree and says there's leopard and we said okay what's the big deal about the leopard he'll jump in and kill us all and so okay <laughs> I've told that story a lot of times to a lot of different people. You know why? Because I got to meet a leopard one time. How many times would you tell a story about a dinosaur if you'd gotten to meet it? Right? You'd tell it to your grandchildren, wouldn't you? They might even tell their grandchildren, wouldn't they? I bet they would. The Bible declares man and dinosaurs live together. Science convinced some of us that there's no possible way that's happened, but science... Evolution's being debunked now. So you can trash all that. Man and dinosaurs did live together. Here's some evidence for you. 1,500 years ago, there's an Anasazi Indian in the, at the Kachina Natural Bridge who somehow has climbed 10 feet up onto the wall and is painting what a five-year-old could look at and say is a brontosaurus. But a scientist with a PhD looks at it and says, I guess it's a horse. You're kidding? When horses didn't even exist in the Americas during this time period? Makes a lot more sense to me that it's a brontosaurus. Here's a couple more. I've got one of these in my office. You should come by and see it. I love it. Uh, Kelly got it for me for Christmas one year. It's called an Inca stone. We find them in Peru. Sadly, we're not going to get to go see them when we're in Peru. Maybe another time uh, next year. So these things are burial stones. And so if you were a great warrior or a, a leader uh, or, or you died in some sort of fabulous way, they would place several of these things 
in, on your grave. Like it kind of worked as a headstone, sort of. But they would place them in the grave with you. And then during the 1960s, another doctor named Javier Cabrera is hanging around Peru. Uh, and he gets one of these as a birthday present. And he thinks, man, this thing is, this is really neat. And so he starts looking for more of them. Guess what he finds? 11,000 more of them. So many more of them. And he just started collecting them over the years. And they're in a, uh, a museum in his house. Now, he's passed away, I think, in 2006. Um, but uh, he turned his house into a museum. And they've got 11,000 of these things. Not all of them show dinosaurs and humans interacting, but some of them do. Some of them just show uh, people fighting different animals, uh, just different animals in general. But some of them show dinosaurs interacting with humans. You see that on the screen behind me. They've been dated as well. Guess what? 1,500, about 1,000 years old. These things are old. As a matter of fact, they are so old that when Juan de la Santa Cruz came through Peru in 1613, he wrote a report back to Spain talking about a great number of stones with engravings that had been revealed, which is interesting because when did we figure out that there were dinosaurs here? In 1822, right? How in 1613 were they knowing about dinosaurs? Interesting, right? Now, by the time De La Santa Cruz gets there, these things are already old. So you may have to back up another 500 or another 1,000 years even from his day. And those guys are the ones who are engraving on these rocks. But they've been dated and they are very, very old. So old, in fact, that the Peruvian government will not allow you to take them out of Peru today. The one I have is a replica. You can't take their national treasures. Which is odd if they're fabrications, right? These guys know they're not fabrications. But they picture man and dinosaurs living together, and that's something scientists will not allow you to believe. But you should, because the Bible's been saying it since Genesis 1. Here's another one. This temple was built in 1186 A.D., almost 1,200 years after Jesus was born. There's a guy named King Javaravaram VII. Yeah, there were six other guys named Javaravaram. So... Javaravaram VII built this temple. It's in honor to his mother in 1186 A.D. He brings in all these uh, sculptors and artists from all across the world uh, and spends a fortune on this temple. It, too, has been dated. We know this thing was built in 1186. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. That's when this temple was built. And if you look at the arrow... And then to the, uh, to the other side of the screen, you'll see what the arrow is pointing to. There's all kinds of animals carved into the side of this thing. There's agricultural scenes with people planting and oxen plowing grounds and battles going on. It's, it's an honor to the Javar of Arms, I guess, that had come before this guy. Um, but he's boasting about his conquests and how magni magnificent his kingdom is and and. Interestingly enough, he puts a dinosaur on there. What's that dinosaur look like? It's a stegosaurus, right? Again, my five-year-old could pick this thing out, this dinosaur. I mean, yeah, that's a stegosaurus. Of course it is. 
you know what PhDs call it? It's a wild boar with leafy background. Oh, no, <laughs> it's a stegosaurus, you see. So they, once again, they can't dispute the date of this thing. They agree that it's really, really, really old. In fact, 1186 A.D., old. And so all they can say is, well, it's not a dinosaur. But my five-year-old says, yeah, that's obviously a dinosaur. And you can see for yourself that's obviously a dinosaur. Here's the other problem with this being a possible fabrication. If you were to remove the stone that this thing is carved on, you would have to remove 40 feet of stone to remove this one stone. Who did that? Nobody can do that, and the buildings still stay up, right? And so scholars say, well, maybe somebody has, has sanded down the original here, and they put something on, they recarved into uh, the original rock, this stegosaurus, just, just for creationist purposes. Okay, but why is it the same depth? Why is the engraving here the same depth as all the other carvings? Why does it have the same patina? You'll hear that word a lot as you think of through these, these discussions. Why does it have the exact same patina as all the other carvings? It's odd, right? Because it's original. Somebody in 1186 carved a stegosaurus on this thing which proves that man and dinosaurs lived together at some point. I don't know if they were together in 1186. In fact, you, as you research this on your own, you won't find any articles saying that stegosaurus bones, fossils, have been found in Cambodia, where this, where this temple is found. It's found in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And so you won't find any articles that say there were stegosauruses living in Cambodia, that fossils have been found in Cambodia. But this artist most likely didn't come from Cambodia. He comes from all around. The artists were drawn from all around the known world at that point. So this guy obviously comes from somewhere where stegosauruses lived. At one point, whether he saw it or whether he heard tell about it, the story is cohesive enough that he drew, sculpted on rock, a stegosaurus so clear that you can tell what it is a thousand years later. Seems pretty clear evidence to me. There's more, though. Again, in Mexico, southern Mexico, there's this city uh, where these things, these figurines are found. A guy, uh, let's see, Waldemar Jules Rudd. He was German. Um, back in 1945, is exploring this area of Mexico and from horseback, and he sees one of these figurines poking up from the, from the dirt. He thinks, oh, that, he thinks that's odd. So he steps down, he digs it up, and sure enough, it's a really old figurine. Now, you think, well, this guy's just, he's riding around on horseback. We don't know who this guy is. Well, he has their credentials to be able to do, to identify this item, because he has the most valuable and the most extensive ancient Mexican um, figurine collection in his day. This guy is no just Joe Blow coming off the street saying, hey, that thing looks old. This guy is an experienced 
scholar in this arena. And so he looks at these things and says, oh, yeah, they're old. But then he finds more of them, and he actually uh, brings in some helpers from the local area, and they start digging up these things. Guess how many they find? Don't guess. 32,000. They find 32,000 of these things. Not all of them are dinosaurs, but a lot of them are. And so scientists come in. They say, well, these things are obviously fakes. There's no way that these things can be original because dinosaurs and humans didn't live together. We know that. Dinosaurs and humans didn't live together. And so these things cannot be real because they're very, very old. Again, 1,000 to 1,500 years old. These come from a civilization before, like the Ica stones, before the current Peruvian culture. These are the Indians who were living there before those guys lived there. And so this is an, an incredibly ancient culture. And so they say, well, this can't be original because if it's original... It blows evolution out of the water. If, this, if these things are true, evolution is not. Now, well, now we know evolution is not true. So there's certainly no reason to believe these things are not true. But let me give you some evidence to back up these things. So they bring in a scientist. He spends a couple of hours, two or three hours, looking over the excavation site where they're bringing these things out of the earth. He goes and he spends four hours looking and inspecting 32,000 of these figurines. Four hours. And he claims to have inspected every single one of them. And he makes some of these outlandish claims. Well, I've never, I haven't seen on any of these 32,000 figurines, I haven't seen any shovel marks from the excavation. Somebody else went back, spent more time, and found shovel marks on just about every one of them. Every single thing this guy claimed, somebody else came back later, spent more time with them, did, did due diligence, and discredited every single one of his claims. Even on top of that, though, to intensify the situation, to prove that these things really are really, really old, in the 50s, the excavation's been going on for about 8, 10 years or so of these things, and some of the uh, scientists are trying to discredit these uh, as, as uh, fabrications, modern-day fabrications. And so... There's a guy there, um, they bring, actually bring down an, an American government official. He was appointed by the president, and he is the, essentially for lack of a better term, he's the figurine guy. He's the secretary of figurines. And so, <coughs> go back and research this guy. Um, his name is Charles Hapgood. So, he comes down, and he starts looking at these things. He says, well, these things look old to me. Again, this guy's got the credentials, the scholarship to be able to identify these is very old. He says, well, these things look old to me, but just to disprove everybody else, let's go find a house. There happens to be a house. The chief of police lived there. It was right next door to the excavation site, and it had a concrete foundation. So they dug down into the concrete foundation. Underneath the concrete, concrete foundation, you know what they found? Hundreds more of these things. It had been there for 10 or 20 years. It's not a fabrication. These things really are old, and all those things prove it, even outside the dating methods. For most of the things that we've talked about today, no one disputes that they're old. They dispute that that's actually a dinosaur. You should, you should roll your eyes right now. <laughs> like that's, that's ludicrous. You can look at the dinosaur carvings and, and the pictures and think, oh, yeah, that's... That's not only a dinosaur. I can identify the exact dinosaur that is. 
but they don't want you to believe that dinosaurs and humans live together. Well, that's not what the Bible says. That's what, not what science says either. Speaking of Bible, let's grab our Bibles. Turn to Job chapter 40. Job chapter 40. I told you, you won't see the word dinosaur in your Bible, but you do find dinosaurs there. Obviously, on day 5 and 6, all the dinosaurs, land and water dinosaurs, were created. We were created on day 6, so man and dinosaurs have lived together outside the water dinosaurs. They got us by a day. But man and dinosaurs have lived together for this long. Let me point you to some passages. Job chapter 40. Let's start in verse 15. And you're going to get to meet a dinosaur here. His name's Behemoth. Again, dinosaur was a term that we coined in 1822 when we found the first fossil. Refound the first fossil, I suppose. So you're not going to find dinosaur in here, but you're going to find its name. Now let me set the scene for you what's going on in Job. So in this section of Job, God, uh, Job has accused God of wrongdoing. Um, all this time, Job has been decreeing his innocence. I have done nothing wrong. And finally, he's, he's kind of fed up a little bit here toward the end. And he says, well, I haven't done wrong. God must be out of line. And it's at that point where God says, sit back, Job. Dress yourself like a man because I'm going to ask you some questions. And he asks them 66 questions over the next couple of chapters in Job 40 and 40. Uh, through 42, I think. 66 questions that are designed to put Job back in his place. You think you're so smart, Job? Tell me how a cloud works. You don't know how a cloud works, Job? Talk, talk to me about the deeps of the sea. You're so smart, Job. Tell me, tell me how uh, a sheep and a sheep get together and they make a, a baby sheep. You're so smart, Job. You see a lot of the sarcasm of God coming out in Job 40. But you also see some dinosaurs that he points to here. And these are real animals that Job, check this out, that Job would have been familiar with, that he would have known about, or God's illustration falls on its face. If Job doesn't know these animals, what God is saying is next to incoherent. So Job knows these animals. He's seen them. That's the only way this passage makes sense. Man and dinosaurs live together. And maybe you came into the auditorium this morning thinking you're going to hear something else. And you're like, oh, dinosaurs and humans, there's no way they live together. That's not what I was taught in school. That's what the Bible teaches. And now that's what science teaches us too. When you look at it with an open mind. You don't buy into all the stuff that the scientists tell you. You look at the stuff with an open mind and you begin to see all kinds of evidence coming out of the woodworks that prove that dinosaurs and humans live together. But if you're a Bible believer, Genesis 1 settles it. Certainly Job 40 helps. Check out what he says. Job 40, let's talk about this dinosaur. Behold behemoth, which I made as I made you. There he is. He's pointing you right back to Genesis 1, right? He eats grass like an ox. This thing's an herbivore. It's not a carnivore. Doesn't want to eat Job. They might step on him, but he doesn't want to eat him. He eats grass like an ox. Behold, his strength is in his loins. He's got a strong stomach. Whatever this thing is, it's got a strong stomach. And his power is in the muscles of his belly. There it is again. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. You know what a cedar tree is, right? We have cedar trees around here. But in Scripture, when he says cedar, he's thinking like the cedars of Lebanon. Now, you would think of a sequoia. 
You ever been to Sequoia National Forest? National Park? It's a big tree. You can't even hug this thing, right? I mean, it's massive. So that's, that's kind of what he's saying here. He makes his tail stiff like a, we would say, sequoia. He says cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. So this thing's strong in its, in its legs, too. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. He's the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword, because he's the only one who's going to be able to fight this thing. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plant he lies. So he, he's hanging out under some, some swampy areas, or in some swampy areas where the lotus plant grows. In the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh, for his shade the lotus tree covers him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he's not frightened. We're not talking like a little creek, right? We're not, we're not talking about this little, this little rivulet of water that's running down. He says, though the river is turbulent, though you've got a raging white water kind of river, this thing doesn't seem to care. He just walks right through it. Doesn't bother him at all. How big is this thing, right? He is confident through it, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. You should go back and, and YouTube the Jordan River um, at... at um, at flood levels, it's insane. Raging river. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? The answer, it's a rhetorical question, right? Job's meant to think, <laughs> no. You know, so what is this beast? Well, it's got a really long tail. Uh, it's got a really strong stomach, really strong legs. It can walk out in water. In fact, it lives near water. So what might that be? Well, it's a hippopotamus. That's what it is. That's what scientists are going to tell you the Bible is talking about here. It's a, it's a hippopotamus. It doesn't make a lot of sense, though, because how's a hippopotamus? You ever seen a hippopotamus's tail? <laughs> it's like that. Not like, not like a cedar tree. Not like a sequoia. What's this thing? Whatever this thing is, it has a massive tail, kind of like a brontosaurus. There's several different types of uh, sauropods that are like that. The brontosaurus fits the description we're given in Scripture. Move down to Job 41. He's going to talk to you about another dinosaur. This thing is terrifying. If brontosaurus, if, if behemoth hurts you, it's because he stepped on you or you got in his way and he hit you with his tail. It was an accident. If this thing hurts you, it's because it wanted to eat you. Job 41, verse 1, Can you draw, draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you with soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Is this thing going to come up to you when you come at it with a spear or a sword? Is he going to plead with you? Please don't hurt me. No, you came to the wrong beast with that sword. This thing's going to eat you. Uh, skip down. Uh, to verse 12. The rest of the verse 1 through 10 is, is you, just, you don't want to you don't want to hunt this thing. Um, but we're running out of time. Verse 12, he says, I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his good, uh, goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who can come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face around his teeth? This terror. He, his back is made of rows of shields. That's an interesting description, isn't it? 
His back is made of rows of shields shut up closely as with, a, as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined together. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. What's that sound like? Dragon scales, doesn't it? Remember what we said earlier? Dragon myths aren't all that mythy. <laughs> They're not legends. They are stories of dinosaurs interacting with humans. And here you have it in Scripture, but it gets even crazier. Keep, keep reading verse uh, 18. His sneezings flash forth light. So when this thing blows out air, light comes out of it, but it, it, it gets even more interesting. And his eyes are like the eyelids of the dawn. They're orange or red. Sounds an awful lot like a dinosaur, doesn't he? Out of his mouth go forth flaming torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke as from a boiling pot and burning ashes. His breath kindles fire and a flame comes from his mouth. If you believe scripture, this thing breathed fire. We believe scripture. This thing breathed fire. This is a dinosaur that sounds an awful lot like a dragon, doesn't he? You keep on reading later on. He's got a really strong neck. He lives in the sea. He's the king of all the animals in verse 34. If this thing's not a dinosaur, we don't know what this thing is. Right? You sit down today. If you've got some artistic ability, after you draw the lion and the fish for me tonight, <laughs> you sit down and you, you sit with Job 40 and 41 and try to draw these animals as God describes them. If these aren't dinosaurs, we don't know what these animals are. And they sound an awful lot like dinosaurs, don't they? The fact is, science and Bible prove to us that dinosaurs and humans live together and they always have. There were dinosaurs on the ark. There were dinosaurs living on the earth after the flood. People saw them. They interacted with them. They hunted them. They killed them. They died by them. Dinosaurs and humans live together. That's what the Bible says. And we're people of the book. So we believe the Bible, right? And we take what we know about science and use it to help us understand Scripture. That's what's happened, isn't it? Finally, science has called up to Scripture. And now we're starting to see some of these false views of science agreeing with Scripture. I know this lesson has been incredibly evangelistic. These are designed to be apologetic in nature. They're designed to be uh, evidence-based. And so maybe you've heard something today that has made you think. Um, that's what we want. Christianity is not a religion of pure emotion. This is a logic-driven decision. When you come to Christ, it is a logic-driven decision. You've looked at all the facts and you found out that He treats you better than you treat you. And so you want to be close to him. No matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, you want close to him. And so today, maybe that's your need. You want to join him. You want to be united with him through the power of baptism. He washes your sins away and you've become a brand new creation. Maybe you've already made that decision and you just need the prayers of this congregation to be who God would have you to be. If you have any need tonight or this morning, why would you come as we stand and sing? Jesus is tender, calling to home, calling to
Good morning. Just a few announcements before we're dismissed. Uh, there'll be a deacons meeting this evening at 5 p.m. Um, and then the deacons and elders will meet after evening services. Tuesday morning, uh, the Young at Heart will meet here at the building at 1030 and we'll be traveling to Christopher Eats for lunch. There'll be a elders meeting uh, this Wednesday. 21st. Uh, next Sunday will be um, our potluck Sunday, Sunday the 25th. So we'll have uh, potluck right after our morning services, and then we'll have our 1 p.m. service. And then uh, that evening, there'll be uh, singing at 6 p.m. at um, the Trevathan's house, if you're interested. October 8th, there'll be a Church of Christ wide door knocking campaign, and this is taking place across the country. And our goal is to place 500 door hangers in and around our community. So if you want to help out with that, uh, please see Chris or Marvin to get details. Jeremy and Dickie's life group will meet up front uh, this morning right after services. Our prayer list, uh, continue to pray for Chad's mom and dad, Janie and Glenn Judge. Jennifer Baker, she'll be having her surgery for cancer uh, this Wednesday, the 21st. She'll be having that at Ohio State, so let's keep her in our prayers. Sean Steiner, he's a deacon at Hurricane, needs our prayers. He's, he's not doing very well at this time. Jerry Fry, uh, continue to pray for him and uh, his heart issue. He had a test this past week at Cleveland Clinic, and he'll be meeting with uh, his cardiologist um, soon to determine next steps. Uh, Debbie Townsend, Chris's mom, is now home. And Brett and Noreen Tani, this is Penny Jessup's friend's son and daughter-in-law. Uh, Brett has ALS and um, his wife Noreen just got diagnosed with cancer, so they are in need of prayers. Um, that is all the announcements that I have. Uh, please pick up a Rome journal to see a, uh, a complete list of all of those that are in need of our prayers, as well as a list of our shut-ins. Remember to keep them in our prayers as well. 
So we'll have one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Let's please stand again. We'll sing hymn number 334, In the Morning of Joy. I'm just going to sing verse 2, and then Brother Kevin Harvey will have a prayer. When the king shall appear in his beauty on high, and shall summon his children to the courts of the sky, Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, as we come to you once again today, Father, we're truly thankful for everything that you bless us with in this life. Father, we're so thankful for the church here and all of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray that you'll continue to be with the church here, Father, with all the good stuff that's going on. Pray that you'll continue to be with the deacons and elders and the good work that they do, Father. Pray for the preschool, Father, and all the Bible teachers that teach their kids and teach us, Father, that uh, you let them know that their work is not in vain. Father, we pray especially for all those who are on the sick list. You know each and every one of them, and you know their needs, Father, whether they have cancer or whatever, Father, heart problems or whatever. Pray especially for Jerry, Father, that you'll be with him and be with the doctors and They'll solve his problem and all the others, Father. Pray for all those that have lost loved ones, Father, that you'll continue to be with them. Pray especially for Teresa at the loss of her brother. Help us to help them in any way we can, Father. We pray for all those that are shut in, Father, that you'll continue to be with each and every one of them. Let them know that they're still loved and cared for. Help us to help them in any way that we can, Father. Most of all, Father, we pray for our shortcomings, that you'll make us a better person, make this place, make the world a better place to be, Father, and forgive us of our sins. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.
Thank you. 